Mark chapter 13 and verse 7. We begin today in this great passage, Mark 13, and a series, actually within our series on the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to call the end of the beginning. You'll see why. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. May God bless the reading of His Word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Our consideration of the Gospel of Mark brings us today to a message, a sermon, a discourse it's often called, that Jesus preached on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was and is located to the east and above the ancient city of Jerusalem. I've chosen to call our consideration of this pivotal passage in Mark's Gospel the end of the beginning uh, because of a quote, uh, about using a quote rather, from Sir Winston Churchill that he made during World War II, specifically November in 1942. His speech announced that the Allies had just defeated the armies of Nazi General Rommel in North Africa in what Churchill called the Battle of Egypt. It was a glorious time for the armies uh, to have a taste of victory against what had before then seemed an almost insurmountable foe. It was in this speech that he famously said, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. I believe this concept very well applies to our text today and to the truth that Jesus reveals in it. Many of you and many others within the Christian world have been asking about the end times. The pandemic, of course, caused a lot of that. The growing natural disasters that we see in our land and around the world happening again and again and again adds to that thinking, is this the end? Is this it? The rise in technology increases our knowledge exponentially. While at the same time, it provides a forum for those who hate God, despise the Bible, and their proposing, or proposals of alternate versions of truth and what constitutes right living. We see in real time events of all kinds, disasters of all kinds, complete with the incessant commentary of the news media telling us why it all happened, how it happened, and what it all means to us because, of course, we couldn't possibly figure those things out for ourselves. We worry about how that there are powerful people who are controlling the flow of information and seem to be able to convince people almost at will of what is right and what is wrong. We know that along with this, our freedom is becoming almost an illusion because everything we do and say and everything we, everywhere we go, everything we spend is being tracked. You know that. This growing sense of unease with these powerful forces, how much they control, how much they are trying to control us and influence us, it adds to our concern. Is this the end? We understand that there's a limit to the dollar-based economy of this world. We are watching and have been for some time now 
the world economic system spinning toward an inevitable end. We know down deep inside of us somewhere that we just can't keep going like we are. Something is going to happen economically. The rise of inflation, the real threat of hyperinflation in our own land is causing people to ask, is this it? Is this the end? Are we there? I read just last week that China has had a historically low winter wheat crop and expecting a historically low harvest. That comes on the heels of the fact that Russia and Ukraine, two massive exporters of wheat, are not going to be exporting much of anything this year. The rising price of food is causing all of us to feel the pinch, and it's not going anywhere, not with the cost of fuel and fertilizer. Ask a farmer, they'll tell you. Price is going up. We face the specter then of not having enough food, not because uh, we don't have money, we got money, but maybe we don't have enough money to buy what it's going to cost. Maybe there'll not be any food there to buy. Again, we start asking, we hear about these things. Is this the end? Is this it? And it is somewhat the end and answer to all these questions that I have given the title to this series. This is the end of the beginning. Because you see, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the world, and in Matthew's account, that's exactly how the disciples framed the question that we're going to look at in Mark's gospel in just a few moments. What will be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so the whole answer that Jesus gives is in response to that question. So when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ and to the end of the world, when it comes to matters of biblical prophecy of these things in general, it's a good time to say, folks, this is not the end. It's not. It's not even the beginning of the end. Because Jesus gives us a very clear indication of what that's going to be. But it is perhaps a time when we could confidently say we're nearing the end of the beginning. You saw it in our text where Jesus clearly referred to current events at his time and historical events at our time as the beginning of sorrow. The word sorrow in that text is from a Greek word which refers to labor pains or birth pains. And a significant portion of our congregation today is well familiar with birth pains. I've only watched them take place, but you've experienced them. And you know they begin small and slightly. They even lend a case to a condition known as false labor. Sometimes you think it started and it really hasn't. But then there comes a time when the labor pains start. Uh, They start mildly, but they grow in intensity and in rapidity. They get harder and harder, and they come faster and faster until finally you deliver. Jesus talked about the birth pains, and he calls them, these are the beginning of sorrow. 
as we give attention then to the specific things Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows, we'll certainly see as we look at them how that these things Jesus described are happening faster and faster and growing in intensity. They come harder and harder. These labor pains are not giving birth to what we call the rapture of the saints. These labor pains are, are giving birth to the time of the great tribulation. The full force of the time that Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he, and that speaks of Israel, he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah then promised a time of Jacob's trouble that Israel would be delivered from so that they could serve their king, the son of David, the Messiah, the king of Israel, your Lord and Savior and mine, Jesus Christ. This presents to us then the, the truth of the doctrine of imminence. The reason why that we say so specifically that the, the, the labor pains, the birth pains, the beginning of sorrows that Jesus talks about in this passage are not uh, portending uh, the rapture of the saints that is portending or previewing or, or, or bringing about what's going to be delivered is not the rapture. What's going to be delivered is the tribulation. The reason why we say that is because of the doctrine of imminence. You may not have ever heard that before, so let me explain it to you. That means that the time when Jesus returns for His people has been presented as an event that every believer could expect and watch for since the time that Jesus returned to the Father. You remember at His ascension, there's the angels who came back saying what? This same Jesus that you've seen go is going to come back in like manner. Right at that moment when Jesus left, there's that promise. He's coming back. And so the doctrine of eminence tells us that every believer throughout all history has lived and died looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you very clearly today that the return of Jesus Christ for His people, could literally happen at any moment in time. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. Imagine getting up and getting ready for school, and boom, just like that, we're gone. Hey, it could happen. It could happen at any minute, at any time. There is nothing preventing it. There never has been. It could happen at any time. That's the doctrine of imminence. And if you think about it for a little bit, it, it really just makes sense to us. In Matthew's account of this passage, remember Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
And he would go on then to explain why this is so in verse 43 of that same passage. Matthew's account again. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Had the time of Jesus' return to gather His people together been particularly identified as, for example, uh, July of 2022. And I just pulled that date out of the air. Don't think I'm making any suggestions. but Because I've already told you, Jesus Christ could return for His people at any moment. At any moment. But... Had the New Testament clearly identified a date, well, it's going to be July 2022, then there would have been generations of people who lived and died and served without any urgency to their living, without any urgency to their serving that is brought by the fact that we know that Jesus could return at any moment. Even more importantly, generations of God's people would have lived and died without the blessed hope And what is the blessed hope? Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I may be presenting something that seems what, somewhat contradictory to you. I tell you that the beginning of sorrows that Jesus speaks of in this passage portends the great tribulation. That is a time of seven years. The last three and a half years will bring in an era of destruction and judgment on this planet not seen at any time before. And the loss of life unparalleled since the days of Noah. But if the rapture can happen at any moment, and it can, and if the rapture happens before that time of great tribulation, and it does, then aren't the birth pains also a sign of the impending rapture. I'll I'll give you that. If if you want to take that argument, I'll concede that ground to you. But only to a point. Because Jesus very clearly teaches us that the time of our gathering together unto Him is an unknown and unexpected time. Though we all believe that Jesus Christ, or at least I hope we all do, believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and it could happen at any time. We have trouble injecting that into our moment-by-moment life. Well, I'm going out to eat after church. I'm going to be back tonight at 5. Got my sermon all ready. It's going to be fun. Out of the prophet Hosea. Hope you'll be here. We have plans and details. We have structure that we follow. But I want you to know one of these days our routine is going to be eternally interrupted by the return of Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. And when we do, 
we're not really going to have time to be surprised because the Bible tells us it'll be in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, a nanosecond of time, that those who are dead in Christ will rise in a new glorified body. Those who are alive and remain will be instantaneously, in a twinkling of an eye, transformed. And we're going to be with the Lord. I'll speak more about that over the coming weeks, but for now you must know that the only way to be ready for that time is to stay ready. Because when that time comes, you will not be given time to get ready. Now, I've been around the world long enough to know that a lot of people are get ready challenged. Uh, I mean, give, a, give them any time and they're going to be five, five minutes. Listen, uh, sorry, you're, you're, you're with this one. You're not going to have any extra time. Ready or not ready, indeed, Jesus said, here I come. So with that understanding about why then I call this series of messages from Mark's gospel, the end of the beginning, we can turn our attention then to what's going on in this passage and what we call the context. The interpretation of prophecy demands that we consider the grammatical historical context of a passage. This is a rule of what is known as harmeneutics, which is the science of biblical interpretation. And a part of that demands that we ask of any text, you know, who is doing the speaking here? What is he talking about? What's the situation that's prompting this discussion? Who is he talking to? All of these things establish for us the grammatical historical context so that we can look at what is said within the context then of where and how it's said. Uh, just because it is a prophetic passage doesn't mean that we can throw all that out. We can't. Jesus had entered Jerusalem on Sunday, riding on the foal of a donkey, a prophetic declaration recognized by the masses of people as the proclamation of himself as king of Israel. The significance of that was not lost to the religious leadership of Israel. It was certainly not lost to the Romans. Five days later, Jesus would be crucified on Friday, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, wrote out the crime for which he was executed. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's Sunday, and that's Friday. The days in between are commonly referred to as Passion Week. That is, it's a time of Jesus' suffering. We know about the cleansing of the temple. We know about the cursing of the fig tree. We know about the Last Supper. We know about his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we know about his lengthy discussions with the religious leaders. We know about the feast at Bethany where he was anointed by Mary with a fortune worth of spikenard. We know about his arrest. We know about his torture. We know about his trial. We know about his death burial. And yes, praise God, we know about his resurrection too. Yeah, we know that story well. But there's another aspect of this time in Jesus' life. And even though it is often considered, it is seldom set in the context of this moment. Uh, 
literally hours before Jesus died, he fielded some questions from the inner circle of his apostles. Mark 13, 1. As he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Peter, James, John, Andrew, two sets of brothers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled And his answer to this question is the longest answer he gave to any question he was ever asked. The message that he delivered on the Mount of Olives that evening is second only to the Sermon on the Mount and the amount of coverage that it's given in Scripture. It is a huge message. And it had great significance to the apostles. It has great significance to the Jewish people. It has great significance to the nation of Israel and to us. The message that Jesus gave presents certain interpretive challenges. It always has and it still does. I have no hope that the sermons I will preach on this passage will answer all the questions about these passages or even address the myriad different interpretations made from them. I will readily and quickly concede that there are different ideas made by good, solid, Bible-believing people who approach the Scriptures from a grammatical, historical perspective. They respect the authority of Scripture and yet they come to different conclusions. I'll, I'll, I acknowledge that. For the most part, uh, we can honestly say then with these kind of things, we don't typically make them a test of fellowship. Uh, we disagree. Uh, we shake hands and leave as brothers uh, uh, because there is room for disagreement in these passages. Some of them are challenging. But the message itself It's not that hard to see. It falls into three sections uh, with an application, as all good sermons do. The first section is verse 1 through 13. And there Jesus will speak to them of current events, current to them, uh, things that are found throughout history during this period of the beginning of sorrows. Then beginning in verse 14, Jesus will talk about the yet future tribulation, that time period such as none has ever been like it or ever will be again, a time when those birth pangs deliver, and what they deliver is an era of unprecedented judgment. That's covered in verses 14 through verse 23. Then in verse 24, we have the actual return of Jesus Christ to this world with His saints. So that the people who have believed during the tribulation, both Jews and Gentiles, will be gathered together or rescued and at the end of this great conflict and judgment, the devil will be bound for a thousand years and we as God's people then will live and reign upon this planet. With Jesus Christ 
for a thousand years. Signs of the heavens Jesus mentioned culminate in this last great sign showing that the fulfillment of everything Jesus has spoken has arrived. What's the last great sign in the heavens? (laughs) Jesus himself. Jesus himself will appear, and the Bible says that every eye will see him. The place in the kingdom, then, that the disciples have been so concerned about, and we've seen surface in their discussion again and again and again already. Who's going to be the greatest? How are we going to do? What Are we going to reign with you? Well, we are. We'll live and reign with him for a thousand years. In the beginning of verse 28, Jesus gives us some stories, parables, illustrations that make the application of the truth Jesus gave. That is the Olivet Discourse. Mark's account is the shortest. It's also covered in Matthew and it's covered in Luke. And we'll pull together these three in our consideration of this pivotal passage. In these stories then of application, Mark records really only two of them. They have become the source of a lot of disagreement and a lot of speculative and even fanciful interpretations. When we get down to the end of the message, we'll consider them in detail. But I want to mention one of them this morning because of the prominence it has held and continues to hold in some circles related to the end times. And that's this one, Mark 13 and 28. Very famous. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It was on May the 14th, 1948 at midnight when Israel was declared an independent state. That declaration came at the official expiration of what was known as the British Mandate over Palestine. You can read about that more. It's all over the internet. It was an incredible event. It happened on, at midnight in Palestine. Uh, Eleven minutes later, President Harry Truman handed a, uh, a handwritten note uh, that was timed perfectly so that it would hit uh, the 6 o'clock news here. No, I don't think that was coincidental. Uh, just in time to go out, Harry Truman then was the first uh, in the United States that had to recognize the newly established state of Israel. It's an interesting thing, the second nation to recognize Israel, Soviet Union. Interesting, huh? Uh, I don't have time to go into all that today. That's just a historical fact. May the 14th, 1948. In these passages of Scripture, Jesus had quoted in this uh, Mark chapter 13. It's also in Matthew. It's in Luke. uh, Jesus quoted from Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel 9, uh, Daniel had a vision of a 490-year period. It is spelled out in Scripture as 70 weeks. And those 70 weeks represented 
years. So it was 490 years, 70 times 7, 490 years. It had a specific beginning time. And it was a time when the declaration would go forth for Israel to be rebuilt or reestablished as a nation. And from then until the time when Messiah would appear and be cut off would be 483 years. That's 69 weeks. And the chronology of that event leads us to that very time when Jesus Christ rode a donkey into Jerusalem proclaiming Himself to be King and by the end of the week, by Friday, He was cut off, crucified. That was 483 years and I'm perfectly comfortable standing here before you today and saying I believe it happened to the minute. If we could chart the minutes... We'd find out that it happened on the very day that God said that it would happen. And so those 69 weeks of years, that 483 years was concluded. Which would cause then Daniel's 70th week, which was a time of judgment, unprecedented judgment, and ultimately of deliverance of the nation of Israel, that 70th week should have started right then. I mean, in the chronology of everything, everything else was fulfilled perfectly, 483 years, boom. Where's that 70th? See, one of the crucial aspects of Israel uh, was going to be the reestablishment of the Davidic line of kings. God had promised that. So for the son of David to enter Jerusalem at that very moment, be cut off then and rise again as he had predicted would signal the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, a time of apocalyptic judgment on the planet where Jesus comes and judges the planet. But it didn't happen. Prophets predicted that Israel would be regathered, and it was. It had been regathered well over 400 years before Jesus came to that place, just as the prophets had said. And when Jesus brings Daniel's prophecy up in Mark chapter 13, he does so to show that something will come that will reveal this time of God's great judgment in the tribulation. He brings up specifically the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about later. And when you see that, when this is seen, and Mark would say that this applies to the readers of this prophecy, not the ones who were listening to it, but to the readers. Really kind of an interesting statement that's there in Mark's gospel we'll see in a few weeks. But when you see this, when you see this happening, then you'll know that (laughs) that's the end. That's the time time of his coming now the parable of fig tree has been since 1948 applied to the regathering of Israel because Israel came into being again as a nation in 1948 it was amazing an amazing incredible time so much history about it so much amazing things about it And along the way then, we began to look at what Jesus said, this generation shall not pass. And since Israel then had been reestablished, 
then we were told that typically in Scripture, a generation applies to a 40-year period. And so all of a sudden then, a lot of preachers, and listen folks, I want to tell you, I grew up hearing this, and you did too. You did too. If you're my age and older, or even a little younger than me, you literally grew up hearing this. That we could expect Jesus to return in the latter part of the 80s. The first one to really put it in print, although he didn't say it specifically, was a guy named Hal Lindsey, who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And he would make that prediction even stronger in his work that he published later, the 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. It's interesting that Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, was turned into a movie with Orson Welles uh, as the narrator, who was an atheist, by the way. I just found that somewhat ironic. Hal Lindsey would make this statement about the return of Jesus Christ in the latter part of the 80s. Later on, then, a fellow from Little Rock, Arkansas, by the name of Edgar Wiseman, would publish a booklet, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. He sent them out to, I think, 300,000 pastors, if I remember correctly. I was one of them. I got his book for free. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture will happen in 1988. Harold Camping was soon to follow, who predicted the Lord's return on September the 7th, 1994. During this time, I came under the influence of a brilliant preacher in our own association, and to this day I can hear him saying, I believe but cannot prove that the planetary alignment occurring in the latter part of the 1980s will trigger a massive outbreak of earthquakes and volcanoes that will usher in the Great Tribulation. Now that particular preacher firmly denied setting a date, but he did suggest it strongly, the latter part of the 80s. I stand here today, and I'm I'm not ashamed to admit it, I did. I, I was very strongly influenced by that preaching and thinking. Many of you perhaps were too. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, I remember vividly a conversation that Nancy and I had as we were talking about this after listening and attending one of these uh, prophecy messages where Nancy and I literally had a conversation about starting our family where she said, you know, I want to have kids before Jesus comes. This was in the early 80s. And and I I tell you that only to say that this wasn't just something we heard a lot about. It's something that we very, very strongly believed. I never went to the extreme that some did. Because some folks have carried that thinking to remarkable and even dangerous extremes. Don't have time to go into all that today. But I'll just say this. The 80s came and went. The 90s came and went. Y2K came and went. There were others, but the next big events that I heard of were the blood moons of 2014 and 15. Championed most famously by Pastor John Hagee, he concluded that these four blood moons would perhaps, he said, lead to Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. Many, many others joined him in this. There were tons of books, tons of articles written. Well, now that 2015 has come and gone, many are already lining up on the next four blood moons 
which will happen in 2032 and 2033, given even further credibility in their thinking because they correspond roughly to the 2,000-year anniversary of the death of Christ. End times theories and ideas exploded during the coronavirus pandemic. And once again, there was an eruption of speculative interpretations about why this was it. Folk, all of these things and many more like them have served the fuel of vision in our world of the second coming of Christ as what one writer called mindless fundamentalist fantasy. So that almost any significant global event brings out people standing around holding signs up saying the end is near. That's my way of saying that all of these predictions that have failed have caused the world to look at us as being even more odd than they normally do. They think we're just a little crazy. Interestingly, these days, the loudest voices, listen to me, people, the loudest voices proclaiming the end of the world are from climate change activists. Ask them. They believe the end is near. Am I telling you the truth? Well, I'm here to tell you today that this is not the end. We're not at the beginning of the end. But I do believe we're rapidly approaching the end of the beginning, the beginning of sorrows as Jesus described them in this passage. The next event on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of the redeemed. What sign in Scripture has given us of the rapture? None. The rapture will occur without warning and could literally happen at any moment. I believe that not because I see a sign, not because I think I see a sign, but because our Lord Jesus Christ plainly promised it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's John 14 and 3. So what do we do about it? What do we do with this truth? I like what John MacArthur said, and I don't often do this, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to quote him, though I don't agree with him on a lot of things. He was discussing some of the practical things Scripture compels us to live out in light of Christ's return. Passages that we will consider, yes, along the way of our messages in the next few weeks. MacArthur said this, So that's why it is so important to cultivate a watchful expectancy for the imminent coming of Christ. The point is not to make us obsessed with earthly events. In fact, if your interest in the return of Christ becomes a consuming fixation with what is happening in this world, you have utterly missed the point. The knowledge that Christ's return is imminent should turn our hearts toward heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. The parables that Jesus gives at the end of this message all emphasize various aspects of our watchfulness, including both our patience and our preparation in case the coming of Jesus for His people 
does not happen as quickly as we think it might. The truth that He gives to us is not to cause us to hide, but to serve, to motivate us even more to serve Him faithfully. It's not intended to cause us to cower in our homes in fear, but to face the future with confidence and expectation, knowing that it is safe in the arms of the One who loves us and gave Himself for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We live today in a culture driven by fear. This culture is created by and fed by powerful forces in this world, which are in turn controlled by the Prince of Darkness Himself. It doesn't matter if it's a pandemic or a snowstorm. It is used to fuel this culture of fear. It preys upon our young. Ask any counselor about the epidemic of anxiety and panic among our young people today, they'll tell you. Why they're doing it, I don't know what all the motives are, but I do know who's controlling it. And I know that this Bible tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And isn't it interesting that Jesus starts out this whole message with two great things. Number one, don't be deceived. And number two, don't be disturbed. Don't be deceived. And don't be disturbed. The future's in good hands. It's in God's hands. And the next great event on God's timetable is the rapture of the saints. Well, if you believe that, Brother Rich, why should we spend so much time looking at it? Because it's important stuff that God put in the Bible for us. And He wants us to know it. And so though the signs that He mentions are the signs of the tribulation, not the rapture, the rapture does happen before the tribulation starts. The question then, are you ready the old hymn writer what a great old hymn and we don't sing it anymore and i'm not fussing at bill it just we don't we don't it just we got a lot of songs we don't sing much anymore but this is one of them there's a great day coming a great day coming there's a great day coming by and by when the saints and the sinners will be parted right and left are you ready for that day to come? The chorus started the second part. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? There is indeed a great day coming. Are you ready? When it comes, you won't have any time to get ready, so don't even go there. Are you ready? Are you ready? The only way to be ready is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you know you're saved? How's our service? All kinds of things that the Bible encourages us to do. Are we, are we doing these things? Are you ready? 
Let's stand together, please.